watching Twitter. I'm Isaac Fitzgerald. She is Alex Berg. We will not be talking about Shane Dawson at all this morning, and you are watching AM to DM. Good morning. Good morning. You look incredible. You got the bright colors. Thank you. Ready for it up here in front of the cameras. Yeah, I know. It's super exciting for me to be here with you in front of the cameras, not in the control room. So I had to serve a look, had to bring a bold print. (laughs) You know, I couldn't help it. Alex is out here pretending like this isn't how she looks every day of the week, always on point. So Alex used to be our line producer here at AM to DM. And so that means that she was in our ear. She's kind of the person that was like, hey, Saeed and Isaac, hurry up, hurry up. Emily's back there now she does a killer job. Alex is now out here in front of the cameras. Yeah, and Welcome. I can be defiant if Emily tells us to move along. I might just keep talking. So it's a nice change. <laughs> I like that. You used to enforce the rules. Now you're going to break them. Oh, absolutely. It's totally going to break them. But listen, I am really excited to be here. But many, ourselves included, are still grappling with the tragic mass shootings at two local mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand that took place on Friday. Yeah, absolutely. The, the weekend was really tough. There was a lot of people mourning, of course. The death toll has risen to 50. Uh, with with the victims' ages ranging from 3 to 77. So a lot of tough stuff out there. I've also seen a lot of love, though. A lot of people leaving flowers, of course, at mosques around the world, not just New Zealand. You've got a lot of people doing uh, uh, appreciations. Students in Christchurch, uh, in church, uh, sorry, Christchurch, New Zealand, are doing these haka dances. They're making these mm-hmm. videos to kind of show their support. So it's incredible. It's also sparked a conversation around gun control yeah. in New Zealand. Um, and it's also sparked a lot of conversation, of course, around social media. Facebook announced it took down 1.5 million videos of the Christchurch attacks from the platform in the first 24 hours. 1.5 Million. So many. It's wild. So social media companies, are they doing enough? Here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News reporter Ellie Hall. I spent a good part of two years reporting on ISIS internet and how the group uses social media. In 2019, it is mind-boggling to me how well the coordinate, coordinated cross-platform effort to remove them from the internet worked and how there hasn't been a similar one for white supremacists. Ellie joins us now. Good morning, Ellie. Good morning, y'all. How are you doing? Good, thanks so much for joining us. So how are social media companies treating ISIS and white nationalists differently? I would say it's it's not altogether so much as about how they're treating them differently as to how it's, they all came together and recognized that ISIS was a threat and that ISIS, the use of, how ISIS was using social media um, made them more of a threat. So, after in, in late 2014 and then really kicking up to 2015, 2016, there were coordinated takedown efforts. And until then, you know, companies were kind of playing whack-a-mole. An account would be suspended and then it would come right back up again with, you know, one number change or one slight spelling change in it. But they got so good at it that when accounts would try to come back, immediately they would go down. Any of these networks of supporters that normally kind of came together, they would all be taken down at once. Okay, so Ellie, I want to ask, how did ISIS use social media kind of before these companies started really cracking down? So that's one thing that kind of makes it from where I stand. Um, And again, what I covered for two years and still cover um, are the ISIS members specifically, how they use social media, the stories behind these people, some of whom were American women who joined ISIS uh, after, you know, joining these kind of groups on social media. But ISIS groups on the internet were very insulated. Uh, They wouldn't often participate in big hashtags. It would be one group of people amongst themselves talking and sharing things. And people from the outside could stumble in. But it wasn't as uh, 
prevalent as the way white supremacists use uh, Twitter right now and use Facebook, kind of all over the world, spread all over the place, which I think is probably why it's a little harder. ISIS members would tweet photos from Syria, talk about how great life was in ISIS, and put themselves out there so other people could reach out to them if they were interested. So what made uh, social media platforms start uh, cracking down on ISIS in the first place? It was a combination of things. It, it was a, a, an understanding that was growing in governments across the world that, oh, no, social media and the internet is a problem. And this is how these groups are gaining more people and, um, you know, physically and just more followers. But um, with, with, with all of this, and also one of the main things that happened was Facebook uploaded the video of journalist James Foley's execution in August 2014. and we all saw it on the internet I'm, because that's where it started. No one aired it on TV, but that was the moment. Whenever anyone uploaded a video um, with images from that, even if they weren't the graphic beheading images or a still of it, even if it wasn't the graphic image, the accounts would immediately go down and they were permabanned. Like if you touch anything with this video, if you upload anything with this video, we're just assuming you're a bad dude and we're not going to let you use our platform. And considering that the Christchurch uh, attack was live streamed, it will be interesting to see if platforms take a similar approach. Like, I would be very interested to see what Facebook is doing to those accounts that uploaded those videos, you know, 1.2 million times, or whatever the exact number was. And, and do we have any answer around that? Like, do we know how they're reacting if accounts are being suspended in that way? And, and really, like, what more would you like to see platforms do? How can they react to white nationalists, white supremacists in the same way that they reacted to ISIS? More transparency, honestly. When the ISIS, when people um, in charge of social media platforms really started cracking down on ISIS, there were researchers who were allowed to see statistics. Uh, they gave information to the government that people could look at about what they were doing, how they were doing it. And nobody seems to have seen, you know, white nationalist, white supremacists as this threat that is getting more and more organized and that needs to be looked at as a whole. Who are these people and what can we do to stop it? There are algorithms that Google uses where if you look for terms about ISIS, Instead, you'll get results about how why ISIS is bad. That doesn't happen. Like that does not happen. And it, though it just came out in an article we published a few weeks ago about how if you you know Google YouTube for anti-vax stuff, you'll get anti-vax propaganda. So it's all part of it. Well, Ellie, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you guys for having me. The news has been really gutting over the past few days, so we are going to take a moment to cleanse the timeline and talk about a hilarious thread about two dogs and a cat that took over a New York City apartment building. That's right, I was just looking for kind of any joy and this thread kind of brought some of that. John Paul Brommer was minding his own business on Saturday when he got a visit from some neighbors. Here's a tweet from him. There's a cat and two dogs knocking on my apartment door. Like inside the building, what do I do? Oh my God. JP then posted a series of videos of his very own homeward bound experience, including when one of the animals in question snuck into his apartment. And if we leave this video up real quick, you can just kind of see it. There are the two dogs, of course. They're just chilling. And, and then the cat just went right by. And then the cat just, just goes that. right in. You almost could miss it. Well, it was quite a saga, and John Paul is here to fill us in. Hello. Hey there. So uh, I got to ask you, have you recovered from your experience of literally hurting cats? <laughs> yes, I, I have fully recovered. Um, 
They were upstairs right over my apartment last night, making all the noise in the world, keeping me up. So they're back to their normal jobs. They're fine. I'm fine. It's all good. It's all good. But let's get back (laughs) to the beginning. What exactly happened? And how do pets knock on your door? Yeah, so I live in a pretty terrible apartment building that was built way too quickly and too cheaply. So all of our doors kind of suck. So what I believe happened is one of the dogs, I'm not sure which one is the real escape artist here, accidentally unlocked it with their paw (laughs) and sort of came to my apartment of all places. I think because, you know, I'm right underneath the apartment where they live. So maybe their mind was like, oh, this is my home. And they just sort of like started knocking on my door with their feet. And I was like, oh no, what's happening here? And then the adventure started. So you had never seen these animals before. And then all of a sudden, just a little tap, tap on your door. You got some friends. (laughs) I mean, I'd heard them, you know, like I I knew they lived (laughs) in the building, but I, I certainly didn't expect all that. Uh, so you weren't you weren't like oh these are now my pets these are now my new friends like did you know the owners did you meet the owners no here's the thing twitter wants so badly for me to have this relationship with these animals where i'm like oh i want to keep them they're mine now no i wanted to like have a peaceful saturday afternoon <laughs> and mind my own business and then all of a sudden these these new friends come up and just you know impose themselves i love them super cute but i, I have a life you know well, that was one of the, the funniest things about watching this is that you seemed like genuinely stressed out about what was going to happen with these animals because this was happening over the course of your entire day. Yes, I was like, does no one else live in this building? Where is everyone? Like, I think I maybe saw like two other human beings throughout that whole thing. So it was just sort of me, the building, the animals, very like man versus nature, down <laughs> to the bare bones conflict here and no one in sight to help me. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was a fun way to, uh, spend my day. JP, listen, I mean, I would definitely read this book or watch this movie. Oh, yeah. I, 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 was there any attachment to these, to these animals? Like, do you know the pets' names? No, I don't even know the names. Cause I, when I finally saw the owners, first of all, here's the thing, Isaac. Um, so it took forever for those owners to come back. And in that gap between my thread being kind of over and them coming back, I was like, oh God, they're dead. Oh God, the owners are in their bedrooms or something and there's dead bodies in there and the thread's going to take a huge turn for the worse because where are they? So I was having this panic attack, right? Where I was like, oh God, how do I break it to the internet that, you know, there there are like dead folks involved, right? Um, I was freaking out. (laughs) (laughs) And so when they finally came back, I was just like, my, my emotions were completely flushed out of my body. I was like, oh, thank God you're back. I was so worried about them have a great night, closed my door, went to sleep. <laughs> you were like, I was a pet parent for a day and I was exhausted. Yeah. It was an emotional roller coaster. But yeah, John I wonder Paul- names. I've had it with you people. Like, do you know what I've been through? <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I've been through? I hope you have a lot of rest <laughs> yes. and recovery, but thank you so much yeah. for the content that oh, we yeah. needed this weekend. We really appreciate it. Oh yeah, you know, if it makes people happy in these really uh, depressing times, I'm so happy that it brought someone some joy. Really appreciate it. Yeah, we deserve it. Well, listen, let's take it to the timeline. Have you ever had a run-in with the neighbor's pets? Let us know using the hashtag AM2DM. Alex, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say you're the type of person that has definitely had a run-in with your neighbor's pets. You, sir, are very correct (laughs) on that note. And uh, indeed, I have. Actually, there was a time, maybe about a year ago, when I was working here on the show, when I was leaving the house at like 6.15, 6.30 in the morning, and there was a cat roaming the hallways of my building Mm -hmm. and uh, knocked on my neighbor's door. Neighbor didn't answer, so I took the cat and I pretty much tossed it into my apartment. (laughs) 
my girlfriend was now my wife wasn't thrilled about that because she was like, why are you waking me up for this cat? But yes, return the cat. That's what dating Alex Berg is like. You just kick in the door <laughs> at 630 and just the cat. throw it. Good luck, honey. Talk to you later. Exactly. Yeah. Did you know the cat's name? Did you know it was your neighbor's cat? I knew it was my neighbor's cat. The cat's name is Buddy. Such a sweet little animal. Okay, so, so you're a better neighbor than JP and I. You like actually know your looking neighbors out, looking out and your best babies. names. All right, listen, we've got another great <laughs> show for you all. Sasha Peterson from Pretty Little Liars is here. But up next, it's time for Fire Tweets. Gotta save the animal. Got- Welcome back, and it appears that some of you have also had run-ins with strange animals coming to your door. Uh, Rachel Hey Girlfield tweeted, I haven't had a turkey knock on the door when I was visiting my parents' house. Meanwhile, my friend found a cat on his sterile in his house. The cat lived in one apartment over. Um, I'm sorry, a turkey? Yeah, yeah where did you- A turkey? <laughs> where? Just, what? I like the idea that Rachel actually lives in an apartment building and that that turkey- The turkey was, just like walked in. <laughs> or maybe it was a neighbor's like exotic pet. I don't know. I, I feel like there's a lot of like, especially New York City living. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of different like, imagine if the hot duck- just was walking down your front. I mean, okay, that I would not return that. That would be like, this is now my pet. That's the problem I have pet. with this. Like, yeah. I have the instinct of like, if I ever see a straight, like, I'm like, oh my God, we're going to become friends. Yeah. They're going to move in with me. We're going to, this is going to be incredible. Like, that's the instincts that I have when I see an animal like that. Yeah. So, yeah. it's. Well, listen, we could easily talk about <laughs> these animals for a long time. It's true. But we're going to get into some of these fire tweets. Ready? All right, I'm going to hit this button. <laughs> Hayes Davenport tweeted, now that all the bees are dying, you have to be extra careful when you see a bee because it must be one of the strongest ones. <laughs> Don't hurt the strong bees. Don't hurt bees, Don't period. Hurt bees. But now, given the conversations we're having, I'm like, you invite that, ha- that yeah, bee to yeah, move in. Yeah. It's your roommate. It's really strong. Maybe it can help you pay rent a little <laughs> it's bit. True. I'm just saying. It's your new pet. Have some pet bees. <laughs> <laughs> Ashley, you tweeted, I got sad in the grocery store because this little baby said hi to me, and I said hi back. And his mom thanked me for saying hi back to him. So now I'm like, bitch, who is not saying hi to my, to my little mans? Who is not saying hi to my little mans? Just be nice to children. I know. You don't What's have to be nice people? to adults. For real. But be nice to kids. Yeah. Be nice to pets. Yeah. Those are things we can agree on. Yes, I think that we can. All right. Ready for the next one? Christina tweeted, I'm glad we've all survived the winter and entered what the hell jacket do I even wear season? Okay, this is real. What'd you wear this morning? Uh, I wore a winter coat this morning, but I mean, it is a struggle. I don't know if I should go for like the lighter moto jacket, that kind of thing. I have like seven jackets out in my apartment and every morning I just don't, like it is, it's that it's not spring, winter's not over, but like Friday it was like 70 degrees. I was walking around in my winter jacket and you can see, especially if you live in a city, like some people are wearing shorts, some people are still wrapped up like it's like, you know, Sub degrees. Yeah. Well, I look, no shorts. It's too early for shorts. <laughs> I will leave everyone to figure out their own jacket situation, but please, please don't do the shorts thing. But let's take this to the timeline. What is your jacket strategy during this very confusing time? Let us know using the hashtag AM to DM. All right. Randy, you tweeted, Arrangers was giving us an attitude, and my eight-year-old little brother said, first off, I ordered crab legs, not your attitude. And I'm sorry, amazing. But what eight-year-old orders crab legs? A young, sophisticated, discerning <laughs> child. That kid knows something that I did not know That's as an fair. eight-year-old. That's yeah. fair. That's yeah. fair. Does he crack his own? Does he? Have- so many questions. Yeah. So many. All right. Are you ready for the tweet of the day? Let's do it. Okay, let's do it. 
Food of the day comes from London. Shopping at Dollar Tree is like, I might as well, it's only a dollar, bitch. <laughs> Bags only. Do you have a hard time at the dollar store? I do store? have a hard time at the dollar store because I get really excited that everything is, you know, only a dollar. And before I know it, I have all this junk and I've spent $30. And so what is even the point? You're you know? like the dollar store. You're like, oh, it's just a buck. It's just a buck. It's, it's just, just a buck. buck. It's thing just I a buck. Need. This thing I don't need. This thing I don't need. All of a sudden, so. it's the $250 store. It really is the $250 store. Oh, man. Well, listen, coming up, I'll be sitting down with actor Sasha Peterson from Pretty Little Liars. But up next, we are going live from the district. Oh, man. Welcome back. We're going live from the district with BuzzFeed News Capitol Hill reporter Paul McLeod. Good morning, Paul. Good morning. All right, let's start with this tweet from Aaron Ruper. Asked if he thinks white nationalism is a rising threat, Trump says... I don't really. I think it's a small group of people that have very, very serious problems. Trump goes on to say he thinks it's too early to draw conclusions about what motivated New Zealand mosque shooter. So, Paul, that sounds like a lot of bullshit. How unusual is a comment like that coming from the president? Well, it actually fits pretty well in line with some of Trump's comments in the past. Uh, when I heard this, I thought immediately of the Charlottesville, the white nationalist rally and President Trump's reaction to that, where you might recall he said he talked about how there were bad people on both sides and how there were people amongst the white nationalists who were not bad people. And yes, we should criticize the bad people, but we can't paint everyone with the same broad brush. And so this is very much in line. There, Trump seems to have this hesitancy to broadly, blanketly condemn uh, white nationalism. Well, let me, let me slightly tweak that. He'll condemn white nationalism, but he'll very much downplay whether or not someone is a white nationalist or how large of an issue that is, how many people are taking part in it. Yeah, I too definitely heard that echo of his remarks. And a day after the mass shooting, Trump tweeted, bring back Judge Jeanine Pirro. After she was suspended by Fox yeah. News following her anti-Muslim comments about Representative Ilhan Omar, what's the story here? Should we be surprised that Trump is voicing his support for Pirro at this point? So, yeah, so Pirro had uh, questioned Ilhan Omar's loyalty to the country, basically, because she is Muslim and questioned whether she was a believer in Sharia law. Uh, that old canard, instead of uh, whether that she could be loyal to the Constitution. And then, of course, after a horrible act of anti-Muslim violence, Fox News uh, pulled her off the air temporarily. It looks like she's been suspended for an episode or so. And uh, it's not really that surprising, but Trump has uh, lined up behind her. But he actually went further than that. It was even a bit weirder. He wasn't just defending uh, Pirro, who has uh, been a huge supporter of his. He, he went on to attack Fox News hosts who've been less loyal to him. People like Shep Smith, who are a bit more moderate, uh, mocking them for their low ratings while praising the other anchors in the morning and then the evening slots who are show a lot more fealty to him. Yeah, I, I would say that Overall, it just felt like Trump had a lot of time this weekend. He was spending a lot of that time <laughs> on Twitter, all right? In addition to the white nationalism comments, what else did the president find time to tweet about, Paul? Oh, yeah. Yesterday was crazy. Trump was extremely <laughs> online. It was one of the... One of the weirdest Twitter days I've had in a while, and that was before the cat tweet came out in the evening. So Trump started uh, all kinds of fights We'd going after, as he blamed union workers for the closure of a plant. He was uh, <laughs> fighting with uh, 
actually continued into this morning where he was just mocking Joe Biden. But the weirdest one for me was him continuing his fight with Senator John McCain, who remains not alive. And yet Trump is still picking fights with him, which then spilled into this really personal back and forth with Meghan McCain, the late John McCain's daughter. It was bizarre. Uh, It was bizarre, but it was also the day after SNL, and there were some tweets about that. Uh, What happened Mm. there? Yeah, so there was this uh, sketch. Uh, it was basically a spoof of uh, "It's a Wonderful Life," and it was sort of what would happen. Would ha- what would it look like if Trump had never become president? And if you're thinking, "Oh, that's a little bit of a weird Christmas-themed sketch to play in March," that's because it didn't air last night. This actually aired back in December when it was Christmas season, and Trump tweeted about this at the time. I guess he forgot about it because uh, he was tweeting again about the same sketch last night, and. <laughs> went further than just the usual how SNL is so unfunny and it's garbage uh, into seemingly sincerely alleging that this might be some sort of conspiracy with Democrats and Russia that uh, the FEC and FCC should look into. Um, we at BuzzFeed News have not been able to confirm the reports that Saturday Night Live is colluding with Democrats in Russia to take down the president, but we are working hard on this one. Really appreciate that. I like that in 2019, our president is tweeting out conspiracy theories in reaction to a parody show that was a rerun. That's exhausting to say, but some real politics did actually happen as well, Paul. He issued a veto. What's going on with the border wall? Mm-hmm. Okay, so just a real quick refresher for people. Uh, the president declared a state of emergency so that he, could, because Congress would not give him funding for a ball, uh, the border wall, by declaring a state of emergency, he can repurpose funds meant for other places to put it towards the wall. This is tied up in the courts. Congress, including a bunch of Republicans and all Democrats and a bunch of Republicans, voted to overturn Trump's state of emergency last week because many people believe that this is a blatant violation of the constitutional separation of powers. Congress is supposed to approve funding. Presidents aren't supposed to be able to just do these type of things on their own. So they voted to uh, basically undo this uh, this resolution, uh, this emergency declaration, rather. And now Trump has vetoed it. And it will go back to Congress where you will need two-thirds of the House and the Senate to override the veto. Now, that is not going to happen. There are just not enough Republicans who are going to vote against the president. So uh, that should happen sometime next week. The state of emergency will continue. However, it is locked up in the courts and is expected to be locked up for potentially years, uh, potentially through the end of Trump's first term. So these, uh, this uh, bashing of heads continues. Woo. Well, thank you for the refresher on that, Paul, and thank you so much for joining us. All right, thanks, guys. Have a good one. And up next, Stephanie is introducing a brand new segment called The Rewind and is talking about the radical life of the suffragette Kitty Marion. That sounds really good. That sounds really good. Welcome back, guys. This is The Rewind, a new segment where we're going to take a look back at some undiscovered moments in history. And it's Women's History Month, of course, so we're going to start with this tweet from Dr. Fern Riddell. Dear America, do you want the true story of an original Time's Up and Me Too actress? Kitty Marion was a bomber for the suffragettes and then a leading member of Planned Parenthood. Where, well, Dr. Riddell, the author of Death in 10 Minutes, the first ever biography of Kitty Marion, joins us now to tell us about that incredible true story. Dr. Riddell, thank you so much for coming on. Hi, Stephanie. Thank you for having me. 
So I guess to start out, let's answer, let's ask this question. Who was Kitty Marion? Because she sounds like someone we should all know, but I didn't know anything about her when I first started researching this. Well, I think that's really true. No one knows her name. And it's absolutely insane when you actually look at her incredible life. She's someone who was a German child immigrant to the UK. She became an actress. Then she had the most horrific experience of casting couch, the Harvey Weinsteins of the kind of the 1880s that we understand today, but was something actresses were really struggling with at the time. And because she's fighting to kind of get representation in her industry, it takes 20 years of getting nowhere for her to then join the suffragettes. And it's kind of this incredible story because she becomes a bomber for the suffragettes. She's in and out of prison. She's desperately fighting for women's rights in the UK. And then the First World War breaks out and she has to flee the country to the US where she hopes that she's going to come and be part of the suffrage movement there. And they don't want anything to do with her. So she ends up joining the birth control movement instead, which is just emerging at this time and becoming one of Margaret Sanger's kind of most important people on the streets. And yet we don't know anything about her. Why do you think that is? Why do you think she has been so overlooked in history? It's a million dollar question. But for me, I think it's very much, it's kind of a double-edged sword. In the UK, the suffragettes tried to hide and sanitize all of the history about the violence. And it became something that no one wanted to acknowledge. And in the US, this history and this connection of Kitty with birth control then became something that wasn't respectable. It wasn't something that a lot of women wanted to acknowledge, even though today it's something that we know women should have rights and access to and should not be without. That is so interesting to think that it's something <laughs> embarrassing. I think, I think we're still kind of fighting those stigmas in a lot of ways today. So how did you become interested in Kitty and her story? Oh, I, I was working in an amazing archive that we have here in the UK at the Museum of London. And I was I just started on my PhD. I just started doing my doctorate. And there's an incredible archivist there who kind of took me to one side and said, I know you're looking at women in the musicals and actresses and, and kind of women on the stage. I've got this autobiography. It's tight. No one's ever looked at it before. And it's really not been acknowledged. I think you're going to get some really great things about out of it. Oh, by the way, she was a suffragette. And I kind of, you know, I was in my mid-20s at that point and I rolled my eyes because I had all of that kind of privilege of I have these rights. The suffragettes in the UK seem kind of dull and boring and yeah, they tied themselves to railings, but it's not something that I connected to as a, as a young woman. And I think a lot of young women at that period in the UK, we didn't really have this huge feminist activism that we now have today. And I sat down and I kind of started going through this typed autobiography that Kitty had left, her own words. And I realized within five pages that not only did I know nothing about the suffragettes, but there was this incredible life, an incredible story that everyone should know. And I kind of, that was seven years ago. And I just knew I had to get the story into the world. You're doing a pretty good job of it. I think, you know, getting the story out there, letting, making sure we all know about this incredible woman. So you say that her story is kind of a precursor to the Me Too movement, the Time's Up movement, all these years later. Can you devolve, go into that a little bit? Absolutely. I mean, it was, it was kind of an amazing thing to be writing the book as Time's Up and Me Took 
Me Too exploded because I'd, I'd kind of written the story of Kitty's life. And when she starts out in the UK, she comes from Germany, she's about 15 and she's fleeing an abusive father. But she has this belief that she could be on the stage and that to be on the stage was respectable and you would have an amazing life. You'd be independent and you'd earn your own money. You know, this is a Victorian woman or girl who's making those choices. And she kind of, she does her training. She learns how to be, she's kind of a triple threat. She can dance, she can sing, she can tell jokes, she can do everything. And she's beautiful. She's got this huge shock of red hair. And no one, no one warns her that she needs to be careful. So the first time that she goes for a job, the first time she goes to an agent, she is invited and offered this amazing contract. She thinks her kind of her dreams have been made and then told to come back the next day after 5 p.m. Now, for a lot of women today, you hear that story and you go, oh my God, you know, don't go. But of course, she doesn't know any better. She's only 19 and she turns up and she signs her contract and the next thing she knows, she's having to fight off this agent and he knocks her unconscious. And it's kind of this, this singular defining moment for her that not only has she never known that men could act in that way to women before, but that someone would expect her to exchange her body and sex or, or assault in this case for the right to work and the right to be independent. And for the next 20 years, she suffers multiple assaults in this industry, as do many of her friends who are actresses. And they kind of band together to try and get the UK government to change its laws to protect women who are actresses in this industry, but they don't get anywhere. And so for me, kind of as, a, as someone looking back on the past, to be writing the story of this life at a moment when actresses are pushing and exposing the same things that Kitty was fighting for 100 years ago was, was kind of amazing. Awful on the one hand, because it's taken us 100 years to get here, but also that these lives and these stories and these experiences women have had when all they've wanted to do is be able to work and there have been expectations that that means men have a right to their body. It's really important that we expose that history. That is such a fascinating story. And it's so interesting listening to you talk about this. And there are so many parallels between the Time's mm -hmm. Up movement and what Kitty was fighting for. And like you said, 100 years have gone by, but hopefully, you know, things are changing for the better. Well, Fern, thank you so much for joining me and telling me all about this incredible woman. Death in 10 Minutes is available now. Up next, Alec is sitting down with pretty little liar star, Sasha Petersi. She is Alison De La Renta. This is The Sit Down, and I'm here with actor Sasha Peterson, star of Pretty Little Liars, and, and its upcoming spinoff, The Perfectionists. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I know this is a busy couple of days for you with the <laughs> yeah. premiere of the show, all of that good stuff. And this weekend, I actually tweeted out asking your fans if they had any questions, and I was overwhelmed with the amount of responses that I got back. That's awesome. I can't wait to hear it. Well, we can jump in with one of those questions. And this okay. one is from Mara Bowen, who says, what was your reaction when you found out about coming back as Allison in The Perfectionists? Mara, that's a really cool name. I was beyond excited. I actually found out that Marlene wanted to do this around season six. So it was before we even finished the show. And of course I said yes, because I love playing Allison. I didn't even really have to think about it. So I was really excited to see the way that she was going to basically create this new world. Um, Sarah Shepard also wrote The Perfectionists, 
and it had nothing to do with pretty wire. So they kind yeah. of made this amazing blend. And Beacon Heights is a really intense, dark, interesting world. It's a crazy new town, and I think the fans are going to love it. Yeah. Well, you mentioned it's dark. It's hard to imagine that it could get <laughs> darker more than twisted. Rosewood. <laughs> but, you know, we went from playing this character as a teenager, and now she's a bit yeah. more grown up. How does that make a difference? I just feel like this is a more elevated Pretty Little Liars, and I don't mean it in quality. I more so mean that this is now an older side of Allison. Um, but I feel like a lot of our fans have grown with us. So if you've watched Pretty Little Liars, this is just almost like a continuation, but not redundant. Um, it's a darker world. I mean, Beacon Heights is supposed to be perfect. It's supposed to be this perfect little place, and it's really not. It's really, really, really not. It has the first murder, and it's just very cool to see Allison kind of grow up and experience all these new layers. She's a wife, she's a mom, and she's just trying to make it through. <laughs> <laughs> just trying to make it just through. Just trying to get um, by. Well, speaking of, Andrea tweeted, does yeah. Allison keep in touch with the other girls? Is there a possibility of yeah. guest starring roles or phone calls from her friends? Absolutely. Um, definitely phone calls. And yes, she's very connected to them. And I think Marlene would love if we have a season two to bring on the girls, Get at least especially to direct. I think Ashley's going to direct an episode. I hope Troy and Will. Um, so they're very much involved and also very supportive. I mean, they're, they're family. Well, one of the things you mentioned is Allison is a wife and she's a mom, yeah. but we haven't seen Emily. So what's going on there? I know that some of the media picked up on this a little bit. Yes. People are curious. I know, and Emerson lives on. Um, it's one of Marlene's favorite relationships. She takes care of it really, really well. And I think that this is difficult. Um, one of the things that Marlene said, which I really, really believe, is that you know the dust has settled and A is not around anymore. And I've kind of felt like, how crazy would it be if you had experienced this in real life? You know, they're adults now. All of this has happened to them. All this craziness. Now it's not there. And you have to kind of pick up the pieces and figure out what it's like to be an adult. On top of it, On Allison, top of that. <laughs> Allison didn't really choose to have kids. I think she is incredibly in love with her, her kids. But at the same time, that's kind of a traumatic experience to kind of have something yeah. just like... By the way, you're pregnant. You know? Folks can uh, read up on, uh, yeah, on you, that end and go back and rewatch yeah, exactly. that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, Explore yeah. the way that happened. Um, so there's a lot of trauma there, and I think she's just trying to prove to Emily that she can be a better person. Her reason for going to Beacon Heights is to get her degree so that she can become a professor at Hollis, and so she can go back to Rosewood and be a better mom and a better wife. So that those are her intentions, however. <laughs> doesn't always happen that way. Plans. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Intentions and reality are two different Yeah. Things. Well, you mentioned Emerson, and um, as an LGBTQ woman myself, yeah. you know, we are so devoted when we see ourselves represented on screen because, Absolutely. you know, it can be really rare. And yeah. I know that people have shipped Emerson. They've done Absolutely. all that stuff. Were you aware of that kind of fandom world before? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean that in such a good way. I mean, everyone was so passionate about it, and I totally see why. And that's why, it's one of the reasons why I love Marlene and her writing, because she really, really, as an LGBTQ herself, she really understands that world, and she really wanted to take care of that and, and make sure that she did it justice. And I think from her own experiences, but also for the fans and paying attention to the way that they reacted to Emily and then reacted to Allison, um, she wanted to really just make it realistic as well. We live in such a crazy society, but also Pretty Little Liars is such a heightened reality. Mm -hmm. And I think she's kind of found that balance. And um, fear not, you know, she she's really made sure that she 
has us in her hands and, and knows what's best. Yeah, but yeah. they fear not about that aspect, but something yeah. you else have said is that the perfectionist is scary because of the surveillance aspect yes. of it and the very online world that we live in. So how is that going to play out? Yeah, um, I think one of the things that is so appealing about the perfectionist is that it's very much kind of kind of what we're dealing with today. It's kind of like that big brother who's watching us from our phones and our laptops and why are they listening in? Instagram pops up ads when you've been talking know, about something. I, I mean, it's just crazy. And we don't really know, I think, how, to what extent we're being watched. And Beacon Heights is kind of the ultimate world of creepy surveillance. And it's supposedly to protect you and to keep you safe. There's a lot of darkness in there and you're not sure what the motive is behind it. And uh, you start to find out how ugly and dark that world can be. Mm. Well, speaking of uh, always feeling watched, you have been in <laughs> the spotlight for a long time. Yeah. And on a personal note, you've been really candid about your experiences with bullying and body shaming and mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Do you feel like just now that we're in this new age of time's up and we're really talking about these things in a mo more overt and open way, do you feel like that's shifting at all? I think it, I think it is. I think the best part is that the the conversation is there. Um, we have a platform to talk about it. And I'm lucky to be in that position where I can really kind of be open and candid, like you said, about what I'm going through in order to hopefully help other people that are dealing with the same thing. Um, yeah, it's, it's really difficult. And at the same time, I signed up for it. It's not the part that I wanted, um, but that's what comes with my industry. It just kind of is what it is. And so I'm just trying to make the best of it. And uh, with my condition, PCOS, it's incredible how many people have the same thing yeah, and are dealing with yeah. it or are finding out that they have it and are working on getting better. And it's a constant process and it'll be forever with me. I have to balance it constantly, but um, I'm not alone. And I've always just wanted to make sure that other girls know that they're yeah. not alone either. Um, we're all in this together. <laughs> and um, my plan is just to help people be positive and motivated and, and always continue to be in that direction instead of focusing on the negative. Very cool. Well, you mentioned that the industry is changing, but you are also yeah. branching out a little bit beyond this industry. I you am, have a cookbook yeah. coming out. I'm so excited. Yeah, so I can't how, what's happening. how did you get into cooking? I've always loved it. I've always just loved the foodie world in general. Um, but my papa used to cook by taste, and that's kind of where I got that from. So I've kind of taught myself, actually. And there's just a lot of fun in that, and it's rewarding to kind of create something that's yours. And so I've been putting together recipes for so long. The book is basically a five-year process of mine. Wow. So I'm actually just about to get my copy. Oh I just can't gosh. wait to see it in person and kind of flip through the pages, but it'll be coming out later this year, and I'm so excited for people to see it. Oh, very cool, very cool. Well, listen, yeah. thank you for taking the time to join me. Of course, thanks for having me. And uh, The Perfectionist premieres March 20th on Freeform. And up next, we are talking about Shrill. Hey. Another show. Yeah, thank, thank you. you so much. Yeah. Welcome back. Here's a tweet from Mary Lambert. Everything is okay. I'm fine and not sobbing uncontrollably watching Shrill on Hulu. My God, the pool party scene. I've never seen so many gorgeous roles. The dancing, the queerness, the uninhibited magnificence. Thank you, A.D. Bryant, Lindy West, and everyone who made that incredible, incredible show. Joining me now to talk about that show is writer Kate Young, who reviewed Shrill for Jezebel. Kate, how are you doing this morning? I'm great, thanks. 
Thank you so much for coming on. You called Shrill Hulu's best new series. Why did you love it? I think that for me, Shrill is the first time I've really seen a fat woman represented in a way that did not pity them and made an effort to retain their dignity as people. And that was really interesting because we've had a slate of shows attempting to deal with fat phobia that have not quite gotten it right. And I feel as though Shrill is the first to actually do the work of making sure that these characters are still people and still maintain their dignity in a way that does not pander to the common phobic tropes that we're accustomed to seeing in media. The first one to actually hit the mark. How do you think Shrill represents fat phobia in an authentic way? I think it's painfully authentic, actually. Um, and I know for me personally, it brought me to tell several times just because there's a way that when it comes to any kind of microaggression, it can be really hard to articulate what, why something is difficult or why it is harmful to you because it feels like such a small and insignificant thing. But Shrill makes, uh, is, is really good at kind of delving into the intricacies of how those small interactions can really weigh on a person and how they pile up but are also always coming at you from different directions and completely out of the blue such that you, they're essentially always throwing you off balance for no particular reason and that you're then forced to confront the ways in which other people's attitudes about your body um, interact with your own life. Yeah, and the, and the ways in which those small things, you can kind of carry them and, and, and they really do kind of add up. To talk about the, the joy of the series though, why was the fourth episode pool especially powerful? I think that it was powerful because it really showed that fat people and fat women especially are allowed to feel joy. I think that for a lot of our characters, we always find them in the middle of a weight loss journey. And with Pool, we were allowed to see not just Annie, but this entire congregation of fat women who were simply existing as fat people and enjoying their lives as fat people and acknowledging that their lives can be full and meaningful even if they're not trying to diminish themselves, either physically or emotionally. It was really joyous to be able to see them have lives that did not revolve around their weight. Yeah, and to, and to, and to make space for that. I, I do want to say, A.D. Bryant, of course, is being praised all over the place, an incredible performance. Why is she so good in this role? I mean, I can't really speak for Aidy Bryan, but I can only presume that she has her own personal experiences that she was able to bring to the role. But I think that what it comes down to really is that she's a fantastic actress and she was able to really connect with the source material. I mean, having read the book that the series is based on, it really is um, a powerful manifesto, essentially, for the ways in which uh, fat phobia interact with our lives and how they uh, depress fat people and um, diminish us and make us feel as though our lives are tied intimately to the way that we look and the size that we are. And I think that what makes Amy so great in this role is that she's really able to bring that to life, whether it's just, you know, the rapid blinking thing that she does when someone says something rude to her or the kind of look that she exchanges with Fran. There are little things that I think other fat people can recognize as coping mechanisms. And she was really able to convey that in a way that is recognizable to people with that similar experience.
kind of see yourself reflecting. Listen, the, you, you you didn't own your piece though, because we we praise criticism here. You know, it is you you <laughs> noted that it was a, such a wonderful series, but it ended kind of on a slightly anticlimactic note. So, how would you like to see Annie's story continue in a second season? Well, I think that um, the issue that I had was more that it kind of. Uh, this just kind of had an arrested momentum. I think that I would have liked to see more of her really hit a peak and a pinnacle so that when we got to a season two, we could start with a new arc again. Um, but I think that there is a lot more to the story of Shrill and there is definitely more story to be told. And I don't know what the fans are like to uh, hew closely to the original memoir, but I do know that there are, there's a lot to mine in this story whether it's uh, real or fictional. And I would like to see more of the way that Annie becomes radicalized into recognizing that her weight is not the center of her personality and that it is simply one facet of the person that she is and how she's able to bring that into her life and into the relationships that she has and to kind of insist upon her own dignity. I like it. You're, you're basically like, I want more. Yes. <laughs> Kate, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. All six episodes of Shrill are streaming now on Hulu, and hopefully there's a lot more coming. And let's take it to the timeline real quick. Are you watching Shrill? Did you binge it this weekend like so many people did? What moment stood out to you? Up next, Alex and I are back, and we're responding to a few more of your tweets. Welcome back. Have you got a chance to watch Shrill yet? I, I haven't watched it yet. It's definitely on my list, and I love that it's all six episodes. It sounds like a really complicated, nuanced story. So, you know, it's it, definitely on my list. It's also, like, bright and colorful and yeah. really enjoyable. I'm, yeah. I'm glad it's on your list. Well, listen, we wanted to know if you ever had a run-in with the neighbor's pets. Michelle Rose tweeted... A neighbor's dog came up to our screen door begging to be let in. I shooed him home and went upstairs. Then I heard scratching. I turned around and Rocky the Pug <laughs> busts into my bedroom, confused as hell. He ran around for five minutes and left on his own. Who could be mad? I, I don't know. I'm ready for this to become its own genre. I'm quite delighted by like neighbor's pets. Like, I'm sorry, your story of just chucking a cat into your own apartment in. at yeah. like 6.30 a.m. How did that get resolved, can I ask? Did um, well, my my wife ended up, I guess, bringing the cat back to the neighbors, knocking on the door. But I was like, it's not my problem and anymore. It, is the neighbor like, problem. oh, thank you so much. Yes, you get yes. an apple pie out of yes. the situation. Um, like, we got many thank yous. They're great. Okay. Yeah. All right. I, love I really like it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, we also asked, what is your go-to between seasons jacket strategy? <laughs> Christina says, hoodies, you know, like the grown-up scene kid I am. That's true. Hoodie seems like a good way to yeah. do it, right? Layering, revolutionary, something <laughs> I don't do enough of, but I'm glad to get some tips. Absolutely. Princess Leia added, no strategy, just a sweatshirt and year and go year round. Yeah, I, I, I guess the sweatshirt is sweatshirt what I need. Yeah. I need a hoodie under a jean jacket. It's time to start getting back into that. Yeah, we've got some answers for our lives This today. was my first year Practical. of getting a like really big warm jacket, though, so yeah. I think that's why I'm having a hard time Letting it go. It was an investment, but it'll be there next Understand. season. You want to get your money's worth. I get it, I get it. <laughs> All right, well, listen, thank you to our guests, Ellie Hall, John Paul Brammer, Paul McLeod, Dr. Fern Rudell, Stephanie McNeil, Sasha Peterson, and Kate Young. Absolutely. I will be back here tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. with Sylvia O'Bell. Alex will hopefully be back thank you. in the not so much fun. future. It was great having yeah. you. Go enjoy your Monday, ladies and gentlemen. Good luck out there. <laughs> 